You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. So good to see everyone. Um, thank you, Rob. Yep, my wife, Danette, is there, and our son, Benjamin, is next to her, and uh, we have a six-year-old over in children's ministry, so that's pretty cool, and uh, I, appreciate, I appreciate Philip saying all those things, and um, it truly is as special for me as it is for him for me to be here with you all, and uh, I remember well the night that Philip came to faith in Jesus and if you've heard his story, it was in the middle of the night, and we were all sleeping in, the, in this bowling alley, converted to a church, uh, there for a weekend deal, and, and the Lord just woke him up and, and got a hold of his life, and uh, we went to Whataburger, because that was the only place that was open, and, and me and another guy, and uh, a couple other guys just talked with him about it, and uh, it's just so amazing to see that um, the Lord is using him to pastor you and to plant this church. Just so exciting, so cool. So, um, well, I love the way he, he closed his prayer about praying that the fame of Jesus would spread through Mission City Fellowship to the nations. So how is that possible? How can that happen? And um, I want to just kind of give you some vision about that this morning and talk through that. So this will not be a, a normal, what you might experience, Sunday morning sermon, um, this would be more, more trying to cast vision about what God is doing through our partnership in Sovereign Grace with getting the gospel to uh, the nations and church planning and all of that. Um, so it'll be a little bit different, but I uh, would love to serve you after the service as well. If you have questions you want to ask and talk more about it, um, I kind of hope actually that what we talk about this morning would raise questions in your mind to say, that makes me wonder, what about this? What about that? I, you know, I'd love to, to help you uh, answer some of that stuff. So, well, um, we're going to begin in Matthew 28 uh, in the Great Commission passage. So if you'd like to turn there. Matthew 28. I have to admit, this is the first time I'm preaching in a movie theater. So a little bit different for me. But I love the background rumblings, and I hope it inspires something in me. <laughs> well, as we look at this this morning, our commitment to global missions as a family of churches, and I know this church is committed to this, is the natu natural and necessary result of being gospel-centered. So when the gospel and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, which we sang about and celebrated, is at the center the natural and necessary result of that is global missions, a going into the nations with this gospel that we so cherish and love. And when we understand and cherish the gospel personally, we will be compelled to share it with others. And that includes lots of others. So that might be in a small group life, just in the rhythms of church life. And we're in small groups and fellowship together. Those uh, that may be volunteering in children's ministry are transferring the gospel to another group of people. So we, we want to think about that in those local contexts, for sure, but we also want to think about that in global contexts as well. And so this passage, of course, probably well known to many of you, is our call as Christians to go into the world and make disciples for Jesus. 
Now, I know, I know that in a wonderful church like this, with Philip as your pastor, that you are learning what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus. You're learning to cherish this gospel personally and proclaim it corporately when you gather, and you're learning to share it publicly with those who don't know it. That's the task of disciple-making. That's what it's all about. The way we say it in our own church's mission statement back in Midland is that we exist to make and mature communities of disciples locally and globally through spirit-empowered mission and ministry for the glory of God. So again, I keep using this word global. So what does that mean? How do you, have you thought about that? That's what I want to focus on today. And in particular, we'll be looking at what the Lord's doing in Nepal as well as in Mexico um, through Retro 3M, at a, which is an orphanage that we partner with. So, Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we look at these things together this morning, you would inspire faith and passion and courage and vision that just extends the, the immediate world that we see in front of us, but would begin to get your heart for gospel transfer across cultural lines. And as Philip prayed, I pray now, Lord, that your fame would spread to beyond the circles that we're comfortable with and that we're familiar with, but that you would win worshipers for yourself and that you would use this church to play a part in seeing that come to pass. So inspire this moment, Lord. Open our hearts and eyes to see things that we need to see, to be reminded of things that we've forgotten, and our own hearts would burn with a passion to reach others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, a couple of things in this passage, and again, I'm not going to exposit it. I'm just going to hit a few things um, from it. But, and I, I think, it's my understanding in the future, y'all are going to uh, actually go through the Great Commission as a, as a sermon series. Um, but if you look in verse 17, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. This is an important just piece to pause at and notice. That in seeing Jesus rightly, we are compelled to worship him. When we see him, the king, in all his beauty, we're drawn, we're compelled to worship him. We don't have to come up with reasons to worship him. The right seeing of Jesus compels our hearts to worship him. And when our hearts are compelled to worship anything, really, uh, we will then also be compelled to tell others about that. We, we talk about what is passionate to us, what we love, what we honor and cherish, we share that with others. And so as we see Jesus rightly, it leads to worship. And worship is a foundational motivator, a foundational piece in our hearts that compels us to share them with others. Now that sounds ideal, and I would love to live my life there, but I don't live my life there all the time. Um, now I've, you know, Philip mentioned I was on staff at our church for seven years. I was thankful for that time. I don't know what image you have of guys that are on staff at churches, but it's not like we just live our lives in some extended worship service. Um, we're just like you. We're 
we're doing our work, we're getting distracted by work, we're thinking about money, we're trying to balance time and family, we're doing all those things. Right now in this stage of my life, I uh, run a small business and professionally that's my vocation. I'm not on staff at the church. What, is, what does it look like to worship Jesus though in our everyday lives? Well, the, the honesty of that challenge is in the next phrase because they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Aren't we all weak at faith at times? Don't we all have our doubts? Don't we all find ourselves at times, yes, worshiping Jesus and at times just struggling to stay focused, struggling to believe, struggling to have faith in, in Him as we should? Well, if that's you, this commission and these promises are for you as well. So this is not for the superheroes among us. It's for the worshipers who saw something and yet who still doubted. It's all there, right? Jesus comes to that crew. You could even read it and say, and Jesus came and said to them. Think about it like that. They worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them, even the doubters, and said, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and I'll be with you every step of the way to the very end. So before we get to that command, we don't want to miss the assurance that's front-loaded in Jesus' words that all authority has been given to me. Now, what effect are those words supposed to have in our hearts that Jesus has all authority? I mean, why does that matter? I mean, he does say, go, therefore. So in light of that massive reality that Jesus has all authority, go, what, what should that do to our hearts? Well, it tells us that Jesus has plans. He's made plans, and those plans are unstoppable. He's promised to build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So how can he assure us of that? Well, because all authority has been given to him. So we go in the authority of Jesus. We don't go in our own authority. We don't stand on our own accomplishments, our own intelligence, our own boldness and courage. You might think, well, I'm an outgoing person. I should do missions. Uh, no, maybe, but everybody is called to bring the gospel to others. We don't go in our own natural personal personality um, as though this commission only applies to certain personality types. No, we go in the authority of Jesus. Jesus is the one who commands, and Jesus is the one who assures, and Jesus is the one who is committed to building his church and to saving the lost. And so we go with that assurance in mind, not in confidence on our own skills. And then at the end of the passage, it ends with another great assurance that I am with you to the end of the age. Now, let's not misunderstand this. We're not promised health and safety and prosperity as we go, but we're promised something actually much better than all those things. That the Jesus who has all authority, over heaven and earth, everything, the entire cosmos, that Jesus is with us. And he will go with us into all the world as we bring the message of the gospel to all nations. Now, the primary way that we believe this is supposed to happen is through the planting and establishing of healthy local churches, of which this church is one expression, that the Lord has birthed a new work in this area of San Antonio, 
that He's drawn you here, that there's gospel centrality that's being proclaimed from the pulpit and from the leadership, and there's gospel culture that's being embodied in the life of the local church as we gather together on Sundays, as we gather in small groups, as we scatter throughout the city and work our jobs faithfully to the glory of God, as little lights on a hill, as little cities and outposts and lights of gospel expression scattered all around this area. That's what the Lord is doing. That's why church planting and establishing of healthy churches is the best form of missiology. And the strategy is even right there in the passage. So the reason church planting is at the core of our missiology is because notice what the Great Commission entails. It entails going and making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them. So where and how does all of that happen? Has God established some mechanism for Himself whereby these things could happen? Well, yes, He has. And it's healthy local churches with people who are committed to one another through church membership, through practicing the ordinances together, baptism and the Lord's Supper, through living in biblical community together where there's mutual encouragement and edification. And then there's going and scattering locally to proclaim the gospel in the various spheres where God has placed us. So we, yes, we are eager to pursue the Great Commission, relying on the Holy Spirit and His power to see the gospel proclaimed and the resultant churches being planted for the glory of God throughout the world. And really... This is where all of history is ending up in one sense, is God is gathering for himself people who come together, who one day he will bring together in the new heavens and new earth, and what will they be doing for all eternity? They will be worshiping the Jesus who saved them, who set them free from sins, curse, and tyranny, and brought them to God the Father, reconciling them to God, reconciling them to one another where differences would divide. The gospel breaks down those differences and he's creating and establishing this one new, beautiful, glorious people for himself who will gather around the throne and worship him for all eternity. If you turn to Revelation chapter 5, please, and we see a picture of this. Our church is finishing up preaching through the book of Revelation. And we've just seen glimpses of this throughout the book of Revelation. Revelation 5 is one of the clearest pictures of this worship around the throne at the end of time. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you, now this is, they're singing this song to the Lamb, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, this is where history is ending up. God has a purpose for himself, that he's sovereignly directing history along a certain trajectory that lands in Revelation 5, that lands in the, the worship of Jesus for all eternity. Now, this is important because from this perspective, from a biblical perspective, history is linear. It's not cyclical. So, in Eastern cultures, for example, people believe that history is cyclical. Um, and, and we understand in some sense that history repeats itself in some sense, and in, in that the nature of man and sin 
pops up over and over, and it will always continue to show up again. It's cyclical in that sense. But it's, not, but it's linear in terms of God's purposes. We're not going in circles historically. God is moving history along a certain line that is going to end up in the full expression of worship of all of God's people before the throne and the Lamb, singing His praises, casting their crowns down before Him, enjoying the new heavens and the new earth that has been fully restored and renewed and reigning with Jesus for all eternity. That's where it's headed. And everything that God is doing on a macro level is leading to that, but even in your individual lives, your struggles, your temptations, your failures, your victories, whatever, if you're a follower of Jesus, He is moving your life along His plan to move history to this intended end. Revelation chapter 5, worshiping around the throne. It's why we think of missions really as the recruitment of worshipers. When we think of missions or you think of evangelism, why do we do it? Because if this Jesus is this great, let's get as many people around the throne worshiping him as we can. After all, anything else that people are living for and hoping in is going to fail them. It's not the thing that's going to save them. They will end up cast away from God for all eternity, but the invitation stands to be a worshiper of Jesus, to gather around His throne and worship Him. And so evangelism is the recruitment of worshipers because we want more and more people to know and trust and worship the one true God. John Piper famously began his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, which is his book on the theology of missions, with this one line from chapter 1, first sentence in the book, missions exist because worship doesn't. Why do we do missions? Because the worship of the almighty one true God is not happening. And we want it to happen because after all, if Jesus really is this glorious, if God's plan and purpose for our life is ultimately what we're all created for, then we want to get people in on that. And we're thankful that God saved us and got us into that, and so we want more people in on this goodness. God is gaining glory for Himself by recruiting worshipers, and that's what we mean by the term making disciples, finding, recruiting, maturing, faithful followers of Jesus who are seeking to obey all that God has said in His Word, including this call to make disciples. Now, the scope of this command, jump back to Matthew 28, the scope of this command is big. Go therefore and make disciples Here's your scope of all nations. Well, that's big. I mean, how do we do that? Who is that? Well, Christians certainly bear the responsibility to get the gospel out to the people around them in their own context. That's the importance of local evangelism and outreach. That's why we want to be faithful to do that. We don't want to be the kind of people who uh, ignore local outreach and evangelism and step over that in order to go to the nations. We want to be faithful locally where God has placed us, and we don't want it to stop there. We want that faithfulness to spill over globally as well, because after all, it says all nations. So we don't want to stop with the local piece, but at some point for us to make, make disciples of all nations, gospel proclamation must cross cultural lines. As soon as we bring up cultural lines begs the question, what is meant by this idea nations? Well, 
in the Greek, this is ethne. It's where we get our word ethnic people groups. Um, people groups is a way to think of it. People who, and this is, I'm going to give you some information about this later in the sermon, but a people group is a, a distinct group of people with, they have distinct languages usually, uh, cultural things that they do, possibly dress, the way they live. Um, there are places in Nepal when we're trekking in the mountains that the way they build their houses, local people can say that is a gurum people group because of the way they build their houses. So there are distinctions, and these distinctions are wonderful and beautiful and should be celebrated and enjoyed, um, but there are distinctions that cause barriers to gospel entry. And so missions is trying to figure out how to overcome those barriers so that the gospel can cross those cultural lines to reach these particular people groups. And this was God's intention from the very beginning. So we think of Acts 1.8. Jesus is resurrected. His cross work is complete. He's with his disciples in his resurrected body. And in a few moments, Jesus is about to boom, hit the button and go vertical, and everybody's going to be shocked in what's going on as he goes up into the clouds. And right before he departs and ascends into heaven, he tells them to wait here because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And the result of this power of the Holy Spirit is you will be my witnesses. That's why we say spirit-empowered mission and ministry. Because any outreach, any ministry to one another, any getting the gospel across cultural lines is futile if we're not going in the power of the Holy Spirit, dependent on the Holy Spirit and looking to Him for power. And, and certainly the Bible connects the power of the Spirit with witnessing. But it says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were standing, and Judea, which is the broader area, and Samaria, which is a little further away, and to the ends of the earth. And so as the witness scope is laid out, it, it implies this crossing various cultural lines. You may know the cultural division between Jews and Samaritans, so the fact that even Samaria is mentioned there shows that cross-cultural outreach was at the heart of Jesus' intention, um, both in Matthew 28 as well as Acts 1.8. So here's why. God is redeeming a beautifully diverse people for himself a people who have wonderful and glorious differences on the outside, but who have become one body, united by their faith in Jesus and His work on the cross. Well, you think of uh, the passage in Ephesians about how the gospel has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and made one new man out of the two. And in that immediate context is Jew and Gentile, a huge wall of hostility between them. But the gospel breaks down the wall of hostility and in so doing, the differences between the two people groups are not erased. God's not making a white church or a brown church or a black church. No, God is not trying to wash all of the differences out and create one new people. The power and majesty of the gospel is that distinction and difference and uniqueness is preserved, and yet, and yet because of the gospel, those differences no longer divide. Because there's something fundamentally at, at the foundation that is bringing them together. 
The gospel doesn't erase difference. It causes the differences to no longer divide, whereas naturally there might be division as a result of those differences in Christ. The, the differences that would cause division are still there, but they're not causing division. That's amazing. Only the gospel can do that. So in, in diversity is a, a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel to transcend natural things that divide people and actually bring them together to where the world looks at that and says, only Jesus can do that because those people would not naturally be together. I mean, I think of many times in church life where I'm in small group with somebody and I'm just thinking, I would never hang out with this person <laughs> normally, right? But there's something in common that we have, and that's Jesus. We, we're both sinners. We both had our sins forgiven. We've both been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We've been both adopted into God's family by nature of our adoption into God's family. We are brothers, and the differences that would have divided us no longer do. They're there, but they don't divide us because of the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. That's what God is doing, which is what we saw in Revelation 5 about God's gathering people. He ransomed people for God. Jesus ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and nation, every people group. He's ransoming people for God, and they're worshiping Him. They're united by faith in Jesus and His work on the cross for them. Just think of my experience in Nepal. There are some 200 people groups in Nepal. So again, distinct language, culture, dress, sometimes money, different forms of writing. Uh, these are distinct people groups, like Gurung and Rai and Tamang people group. And maybe you've heard of Sherpas, you know, with, if you've watched it climbing Mount Everest documentary. The Sherpas aren't people that just carry your bags. Those are, they're porters. But Sherpa is a people group. It's an actual people group with a distinct language and religion that they practice. It's a people group. Magar, Shetri, all these are different people groups. They sing their songs. They have cultural differences. They have dietary differences. All of those things. But one thing that is such a unique experience in doing some short-term missions is that we can join them for church. And I can think of one time high up in the mountains, and they're singing in their native dialect songs to Jesus, and then it's time to take communion. Well, they, they don't have wine. They certainly don't have grape juice. There's no refrigeration and things like that. So they share communion with what they have. They come around with a big teapot, and, and everybody uh, gets their communion in tea. Some people were, were having to use a piece of paper funneled up because they, don't, they can't get little nice plastic communion cups up in the mountains. But to share communion with believers in remote places, to think these people have been saved from their sins just like we have. Man, you just feel the wonder of the gospel that it's not a Western thing, it's not an American thing, that God is, God is recruiting for himself worshipers. And there's a certain beauty that shines forth when you see different people groups worshiping the one true God because it highlights the real power of the gospel to change your own hearts and lives. Especially in, in uh, places like Nepal or India where there's a caste system, it's even more stark. Because in a caste system, your people group is ranked according to value and worth. So at the very bottom are the untouchables that if you touch them, then you become unclean. And then there are the, the ones that are the elite people groups. And so uh, this is how society works. 
And so to see a church where people from all different castes are coming together and eating together and sharing meals together, they don't know what to do with that. That is God glorifying in a powerful, powerful way. And so this is what God is all about. He's doing this sort of thing in recruiting worshipers for himself. So we want to be faithful locally and globally. Now, has God called all believers, when we think of that globally, has he called all believers to play a part in some way in terms of global disciple making? Well, I believe yes, some part. The globe is big. We're not called to play every part. Not every one of us is called to reach every spot on the planet, obviously. But is it really something that we can just ignore and say, well, I, I don't need to do any kind of global part? Well, I believe we, we can. Now, the way we've thought about um, missions and short-term missions, um, I've come up with like kind of a subjective ranking system, red, yellow, green trips. Now, green trips would be things that are fairly close, um, pretty low risk, but there is a cross-cultural element to it. Um, people of all ages, of all physical sizes, of all physical uh, makeups can go to it. Um, it's the kind of a trip that's an easy on-ramp into global missions. I think of those as green trips and, um, and things that almost anybody could do. So Rancho 3M would be like that. Rancho 3M is just across the border from El Paso, Texas. It's an orphanage and school that we've partnered with for over 20 years. And uh, what, what they exist to do is to bring in kids from whose parents have died in the drug wars that have happened over the years or who have been abandoned or trafficked or anything else, and they bring them in and they educate them and they, they teach them the gospel. And uh, they, they proclaim Jesus to the kids. And after decades of this happening, the ranch has been around for more than 20 years, but after decades of this happening, there are men pastoring and planting churches in Mexico because they were at the ranch and they got saved there and God sent them out. So there's so many opportunities there. I hope that one day you could uh, participate. You, any of you, you know, we could, you can come with us when we do our trips. From Midland, it's like four and a half hours away. Um, so it'd be a little bit longer from here. But this is a great way. I mean, we tell our church, the whole family can go. Bring your babies, bring, <laughs> bring everybody. It's okay. And uh, just to, to be there and to love on these children, to play with them, to let them climb on your back. You know, kids need, kids need physical touch big time. And uh, when they have 60 kids and only so many staff, there's only so much physical touch that can go around. So when teams come and just play with the kids and befriend them and build relationally with them, it goes such a long way. And as we transition to Nepal, I want you to hear that phrase, building relationally, because that's such an important and often neglected aspect of short-term missions. Um, we don't want to be parachute-type missionary where you just drop in and you, you, you like do your business and then check out and you're gone. That's not healthy short-term missions practice. Healthy short-term missions is you, you go and you build long-term. You think about in the future, how could I partner with these people? How can I keep up with them? How can I befriend them? How can I come back next year? And, uh, and at Rancho 3M, the cool thing is if you do go back more than once, those kids will remember you. They'll remember your name. They'll be so glad to see you. And as soon as you hop out, they're like taking your hat and running and playing with you. And, uh, it just goes such a long way. And what, what we're doing is embodying the love of the Father to these children. Um, and so 
That's such an important aspect. Great way to get involved in short-term missions. The other one I would consider more of like an orange trip, which is Nepal. Now, depending on what we're doing, it could be a red trip. If we're going four days into the mountains apart from any roads and in a very remote place and we're trekking 12 miles a day uphill uh, the whole way, I don't know how it's always uphill, but it, you never go down somehow. And it's extremely strenuous. I mean, obviously, not everybody can do that. Um, and there's a certain degree of risk there. And so that's more what some of the Nepal trips have been like. But for some of you, God may be calling you to do that. I think a great way to segue into short-term missions would be to do a short-term trip. And after people have done a few short-term trips, then they might start thinking midterm, six months to two years. Uh, some people might want to give their life that way to it for a couple of years and, and serve in that way. And then long-term would be more your traditional missionary who moves to a new location to serve and, and plant churches and spread the gospel. So what we're doing is trying to um, establish on-ramps for churches like this one so that you can get involved in short-term missions and what God is doing in Nepal. So let me take a moment and talk about Nepal. Now, worldwide, it is estimated there are about 6,000 people groups. Again, distinct languages, cultures. Mexico alone has 240-something people groups. I mean, we're, I've been there. We're talking about people that don't speak Spanish. I know you think of Mexico, well, everybody speaks. There are people that have never seen white people, that barely know Spanish, that speak some dialect that doesn't even begin to sound like Spanish. And there are a couple of hundreds of those. There's opportunity very close by to spread the gospel into these kinds of places. Well, Nepal is similar to that. Um, in, in worldwide, let's back up, worldwide, so 6,000 people groups, mystiologists have, have estimated that about 1,600 of those groups are considered to be unreached. Now, when we say unreached, it's kind of a technical term. And... Um, one way that that's been measured, I know it's kind of arbitrary, but is uh, when less than 2% of a population is professing Christian, it's considered to be unreached. So people have studied this and they've said, once, once you get over about 2% of the population, there's enough of sort of that um, critical mass to, uh, for, for that 2% to then begin to evangelize it on, on their own. But when you're less than 2%, it's super hard for the gospel to, to break in because you don't have quite the, the nucleus that you need to, to really build it out. So less than 2% is considered unreached. Um, uh, by unreached, uh, it's estimated there are 1,600 people groups around the world. So that's saying 1,600 people groups where less than 2% of the population is professing Christian. This makes up about 2 billion people around the world that are considered unreached. Again, as I mentioned, over 200 people groups are in Nepal. Many of those are unreached. Many of them are. They have little to no access to the gospel. Now, that's another distinction. I realize we have unreached people right here, and we should be evangelizing to people in the United States and in Texas, no doubt. But when you compare access, that's a big question. So people here might be able to access the gospel. They drive by five churches on their way to work. Uh, they can turn on the TV. They can look something up on the internet. They, have act, they could access the gospel if they wanted to. But when we, when we say other places around the world have 
little to no access to the gospel, meaning they, they don't even have that as an option for them. But the amazing thing is in Nepal is that God is moving big time among Nepali people. And it's been in the last 25 or 30 years where he has, the, the work of God has just blown up in Nepal like crazy. And he's positioning Nepali believers all around the country who can get the gospel to their neighboring people groups who have not yet heard, who can transcend some of those cultural barriers because they live on the fence, so to speak. They're right next door. There may be cultural differences, but the gospel compels them to cross the cultural line and share the gospel with these people. And that's what evangelism is all about. And that's our, our task as believers, is to do this, to spread this message of God's love to these people. And that must be done with words, not just with actions. Now, David Platt was visiting Nepal. He's a pastor and writer. And he made this observation. So he's there in the Himalayan mountains. Beautiful, by the way. Nothing like the Rocky Mountains. It's just so unique, so special, so breathtaking. And he's there, and he, he made this observation, that as loudly and clearly as the mountains declare the glory of God, and they do, they do, as loudly and clearly as they declare the glory of God, they cannot declare the gospel of God. For that to happen, words must come out of people's mouths. It, we don't believe in preach the gospel when necessary, use words. Preach the gospel, and it is necessary to use words in, in doing it. And our lives should back up the message that we're proclaiming, no doubt. But Romans 10, 14 says, How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, I know when we think of preaching, we think of the guy up here. That's preaching. The word really in, in Romans there is proclaiming. How can they hear unless someone proclaims this gospel to them? That's, you don't have to be a pastor to proclaim the gospel to somebody. We all should be proclaiming the gospel to our children and to our whatever spheres of influence God's placed us in. So it's necessary. We must go or they will not hear, and the gospel must go forth that way. And in Nepal, the darkness is so deep, the deception is so powerful that the gospel is truly their only hope. And I, you'll see us in, when we watch this video here in a minute, um, a time when, when we were going through an area that was very dark. It's a temple area. You'll see it on, on the video. And a, a unique experience for me was we did that the day before we went to church. And so we're in this, this place where just the, the, the enemy's deception of people the entrapment of religion just all around them was such an, an oppressive kind of feeling. I mean, we left heavy and, and broken over that. The next day, we gather with God's people, and we're singing praises to Jesus. And it was such a night and day difference to go from the darkness of that experience, the, the hopelessness and despair that marked that, and the very next day, go into the joy and hope and glory of God's people gathering together. That's what God is doing, is he's transferring people out of this kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, um, I want to share a video with you that we made a few years ago. And um, the pastor on this video, I won't be able to say his name um, for the audio recording because we have to be very careful with uh, security. And uh, 
He's a, he's a very influential person in all of Nepal and uh, is involved with multiple churches across the entire country. I would say is probably the most influential Christian in Nepal. I meet people in the United States who... I've met a few people who are Nepali Christians, and I say, do you happen to know this guy? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know him? <laughs> it's just crazy how much this guy gets around, but it's because he has a heart to see gospel-centered churches planted and, and strengthened and striving all over Nepal. So you're going to hear his heart and his testimony in this video, and then I'm going to come back up and end with a few practical ways that really any of us could, could get involved and helping move the ball forward for the gospel in this area. So let's watch this video together. Kathmandu is, is the biggest city of Nepal. About 3.5 million people live in this valley. It's not a big valley, small, it is a small valley. Also, Kathmandu is known as a... a city of temples and wherever you go you will see the temples every corner of the street you will see a little shrine and a worship place like that and people are very religious in our country so the hindu people believe in 330 million god and goddess so people do worship all kind of thing hindu people believe that uh, they have to earn the righteousness. To earn righteousness, they do all kind of things. One thing they do, going to the temple, offering things. So you will see early morning people going into different temples. So temples are packed in the morning. Uh, Pasupati, that is one of the holiest temple of Hindu. And river you see in that place, that's called Bhagmati River. For Hindus, uh, river is always uh, holy. Uh, most of the people they come thinking that that's the holiest place uh, for them to be and uh, pleasing all different god and goddess and uh, trying to please different god and goddess over there. That's what they do. Even it's cold winter, they go and they dip themselves uh, thinking that their sins will be washed away. Once people die, they cremate them. And once uh, they're cremated, all the assets, everything, thrown, uh, thrown into the river. People do everything uh, to earn righteousness. But when they come to learn that Christ has done everything for us, when they, uh, they, they begin to understand that, doesn't matter what other things are there, they want to follow Christ, they are willing to pay price. Most of the people, they hate Christians. The reason is, we don't follow but they, they do that. They believe in many gods and goddesses, and we don't do that. They say that we are narrow-minded minded people. They accept everything. For them, it's not, it's not, it is not a big deal to accept Christ as a one of God, you know, including Christ as a God. So they worship uh, uh, Christ as God, as one of the God as well. But when we, Christian, when we become a Christian, we don't accept everything and we just follow Christ, yeah. and they don't like that, and they think we are narrow-minded people. Once people become a believer, they have to go through all kind of obstacles, and there will be uh, some family, they will uh, kick them out. When I become a believer, 
I was kicked out from my family as well. And many people, they will be looked down by other family member, even some community, then, how do I say, they excommunicate them. Uh, if wife become a believer, husband comes home and beating uh, wife, um, becoming a believer like that, and uh, taking away some of the privilege, and the father and mother, they will say that you are dead for us because you become a believer like that. All kind of challenges are there. And I would say that I was a kind of rotten guy. And that's what I say that, you know, worst sinner of the sinners, and you know, I'm the worst one, I would say that way. Paul said that, but I don't think Paul did anything what I did. And he, he, knew, he knew Bible, he studied scripture very well, and he feared God. Uh, he persecuted uh, believers, and we find that. But you know, I was much worse when we talk about it. Uh, the Bible says, wicked will not have rest in their heart. And I, I was used to be, I used to be restless, to find rest. And I tried every, so many things, going into the temple, listening to the holy man, trying to follow their instruction, and to come out of restlessness. We tried all different kind of things, like dr drugs. We didn't know it was drugs. We said that time medicine, that will help us. And uh, alcoholism and things like that. Uh, uh, I don't like to talk about all this negative thing, but I like to talk That's about okay. what God has done. Yeah. And it's a wonderful thing that, you know, God found me, He chose me, and He rescued me from that um, ditch in 1982. It's a Sunday morning. God opened my eyes. I began to see that. And He's real. He's a loving God. And He's wonderful God, who loved person, even person like me. Even person like me, He loved. And I understood that he forgives all my sin and he, he accepts me. And that day was kind of big and the start of the big change in my life. And God changed my life completely. Um, then I began to follow him. I, I wanted to preach gospel wherever I go. And even I knew that it is against the law, but I didn't care about it because and the people tell me, they will put you in jail. I would say that. So what? I'll go to jail. There are people who need to hear about him. And those days, there were not many believers. And we knew almost all believers throughout Nepal. But now we can see that. I think people say that there are at least 1.5 million uh, people who are believers. So uh, that number is growing very fast. And, and it is him. It is God who is doing all these great things. God is moving among Nepali people, not just in Kathmandu, wherever they are. In Kathmandu, you see that most of the churches are growing very fast. And we have a strong desire, uh, all the churches that are founded, they may be founded into the Word of God. Mm. Let the Word of God be the foundation of the church. People are very religious in our country. Uh, my prayer is that the Lord may turn their, uh, that devotion to Himself. That's what I always pray. And whenever we go to temple, you see that people wandering around doing all kind of ritual thing. 
and once they come to know true and living God, how much more their devotion would be to the living God. That's how I see that. So I pray for them that way. So, as it says there, pray, give, and go. And when we think of how could God use me to move the ball forward in a context and situation like this, that's the right question. That's a great place to be starting. And pray, give, go is just a good strategy to think about. Everybody can pray, but it's not like, well, yeah, we can, we'll just have to pray. No, Prayer is significant, and prayer makes a difference. And when you ask these guys, what do you need? The first thing they're going to say is pray. Please pray. So praying is so significant. Giving. Of course, gospel work costs money. It costs to travel to these places. It, it costs to get the gospel into other places. So participating financially is, are ways that we can do that. Um, and then, of course, for some, you may be able to go. God may give you the, the means and the physical stamina to endure a 15 hours and 45 minute flight between Dallas and Doha. Um, that is a long flight. And, uh, you know, so there's the flight, there's the time change, there's the dietary changes that our bodies go through. Um, it's a physically exhausting trip. It's not for everybody, but for some, the Lord may be calling you to do that. Now, um, when we think of short-term missions, we don't think primarily in terms of projects and teaching and what can we do, but we think of it in terms of when we go, how can we come alongside these kinds of people and learn from them and support them? And uh, we, we recognize that built into short-term missions, there are certainly some limitations. We're not going to be able to reach the Hindu people that you see in the video in a one-week trip. I mean, we might. Well, I hope we do, but... It's not very realistic or practical um, to not only reach them, but then to disciple them and to plant churches for them and all of that. Those are just the limitations of a short-term trip. So we find that it's vital to find long-term partners who are in the field doing these things, laboring to see churches planted, which is what our partner is doing. And so the role that we can play in Sovereign Grace Churches is we come alongside partners in the field who are in the position of long-term church planning, and we strengthen them, we support them, we show up, we bring relationship and presence and encouragement to them and say, we're coming alongside you because we realize the best way to reach the neighboring people groups deep into the mountains where there's no roads, the only way you can get there is to walk, and the only way gospel is going to get to them is when local believers in Nepal take it to them well, it's going to be much more effective if we partner with those local believers. So our short-term mission trip focus is often partnering with local believers who are on the front lines, living among the people groups, don't need to spend 20 years learning the language and figuring out the culture and figuring out how to get there. They're there. They can do it. So we partner with them. We lock arms with them as they go, and we're supporting them relationally and financially and prayerfully and with resources. Now, how does that happen? For most of us, um, connection with the gospel expansion among underreached people groups is going to happen when your own church is, uh, is able to partner with someone long-term in the field making disciples. Um, 
Now, that's something in which every church and really every church member can participate in. As partners form between field partners and local churches, these partnerships can get shared in the region. So the South Central region of Sovereign Grace Churches, we're, we're sharing this partnership. So already, um, the trips that I've led have involved people from different churches around the region. So September got to come with us a few years ago and experience one of these trips of what I'm talking about. And, you know, so what part could someone like September play? What part could any of you play in that? Well, let's, let's get, talk about that as well. Um, but the, the potential here is just huge as we share these partnerships and get connected um, among Sovereign Grace churches. Now, um, in terms of long-term strategic partnerships with church planning pastors, which is what this guy in the video is, and, um, one way is that pastors are able to, to teach and share. So like this guy has asked us to come and actually go through the seven shared values of Sovereign Grace Churches with as many pastors around Nepal as we possibly can. So Pastor Billy and I have done that. Uh, Pastor Aaron Mayfield out of Round Rock has done that with us. Others, we're, we're going and, and happily we'll share the seven shared values with them uh, because he actually has a heart to see Sovereign Grace Churches of Nepal formed in his country, which is just humbling and amazing to us. And it's something that he has requested and we're, we're just like, sure, I mean, how can, we, how can we help you make that happen? But on a disciple-making level, here's where we can all get involved, is one of our strengths in Sovereign Grace is the, the relational and cultural piece of gospel living that we have. There's a, there's a gospel-centered culture that exists in our churches, which is so wonderful, and which I think can be such a gift to the nations. And so... We want to try to leverage these relational and cultural strengths of Sovereign Grace Churches for the good of the nations. So what does that look like? Well, during teaching and training time for pastors, some of us are teaching gospel doctrine, like the pastors are, are doing that with the pastors, while those who don't teach are there embodying gospel culture that we've enjoyed for so long in Sovereign Grace. And so that may look like times where some of you might know, um, I mean, Obviously, you know uh, September. Some of you might know Janice Prater. You know, Janice has come on a number of trips with us. She's in the, the Round Rock Church. Yeah. And, um, but just, just to see some of these girls and, and guys that are coming with us, um, sitting down at the table, eating meals with the pastors and their wives and holding their babies and praying with them after sessions. I mean, there's a relational cultural piece that gets put on display just when we go in the love of Jesus. And it, and it complements the message that the guys are hearing in the teaching. And so that's the relationship between pastor and church member as we go together to, uh, to, to bring the gospel. We've also done discipleship treks where we've partnered with other young people in Nepal who are young Christians, and we'll go on a trek. We'll go backpacking in the mountains and spend time worshiping together and going, doing devotions in the morning and in the evening and singing songs together. And when we stop and stay at a place in a village or something, we're going to look for opportunities to share the gospel with people. Um, we've done lots of other things like helping local believers learn certain skills that they can uh, earn an income for themselves because a huge problem is lack of job opportunity and everybody's moving, going out to uh, the Middle East to work and they'll be there for years and years and just send money back. And it's caused this problem of, of absenteeism among parents because, and it, which means that kids are abandoned and they become subject to all kinds of trafficking. And so just equipping people with skills so that they can stay in their country and work 
Um, it may mean service projects at times that open gospel doors for people. There was one where a team of ours uh, painted a police building. Now, the police who are supposed to arrest Christians for practicing their Christianity uh, were painting their building. And uh, that night, the police chief um, and Barnabas and our pastor started to talk, and the police chief uh, gave his heart to the Lord that night. And uh, our, our partner pastor comes dancing down the mountain, all excited about it, that, that this guy came to know Jesus, and he was so excited. And what blew me away in that experience was that just hours before that, in our church service, the Lord healed a lady who was deaf and opened her ears and, and just literally did a physical healing miracle right before our eyes. And we're already blown away by that. And, and this pastor was like, oh, yeah, that was cool. Thank God for that. But this guy got saved, you know. And uh, he, he just gets the priorities right. And I just love that. Um, so doing things like that, we, we've gone on backpacking trips and given out MP3 players that contain the Bible on them and gospel messages because there's so much illiteracy. So that it's solar powered, they can hear the gospel message through this MP3 player, and we're getting those to, uh, to very remote parts of Nepal. So lots of things that we can do. Let's end with this. This is a glorious task. It's a big task, and it can feel intimidating and even impossible, especially for smaller churches. But this is where we, the, the blessing of partnership comes in, into play. It might be hard for a small church to launch a trip like this, but we can partner together as churches and go together in the name of Jesus for the glory of God, knowing that where we started in Matthew 28 is our guide, that all authority has been given Jesus, given to Jesus, and he has promised to be with us as we faithfully seek to obey all that he's commanded. So let's stand together and let me pray for us. Lord, it's just so exciting to think about the various uh, ways that you're moving in another country and to think that there are actually ways right now that folks in Mission City Fellowship um, could, could play a part and in, in, the, in the very near future. Um, so Lord, I just pray that you would uh, stir our hearts for that and you would open doors that maybe we're not even thinking about. And you would grant faith to this fine group of folks, Lord, that you've saved and redeemed and brought into this place. And uh, do this for your glory, God, because we long to see worshipers around your throne for all eternity, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.